Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner, and we are still in quarantine. Agree or disagree, you are what you eat. Did you know this phrase first appeared in 1826 inside the book, The Physiology of Taste, or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy by Enthelm Brillat Savarin? It's a lot of syllables. These five words have since been repeated so much that they've almost lost their flavor and sustenance because we stopped listening, stopped paying attention in lieu of immediate gratification and convenience. Yes, we know what we eat dictates how we feel, how we look, and affects our emotional and mental states, but good nutrition is even more of a white knight in this pandemic, and yet it's arguably being overlooked. With the outside world in unrest and imbalance, inside we are searching for resilience and equilibrium, but even the basics of self-care like eating might not necessarily feel so simple at the moment because our relationship to food and the whole manufactured ethos around it have us neck deep in a 12-layer dip and side of chip. If, say, we're the head coach of our body, nutrition is the MVP we've been accidentally benching. Trust me, it's time to get her into the game, and today's guest converges both evolutionary intel with revolutionary techniques to turn you into the champion you're naturally designed to be. No expert, scientist, or politician can precisely predict when life will resume to normal, or if things will even go back to what we define normal as. We don't know how long we will be sheltering in place, but in this suspension is an unexpected opportunity to truly transform our our bodies and health from right inside our very homes. And guess what? The answer isn't just to work out. It's also not giving into the myths that food manufacturers are using right now to manipulate us. When we reemerge in the world, what if we were like a butterfly parting from the cocoon? If we take a little extra time to get to know ourselves, including through what we're eating and why, epic changes can happen. As if better sleep, productivity, elevated moves, and improved confidence weren't enough, we're talking personal freedom. Today might just be the start of a makeover. This brings us to our specialist, Eric Edmeads. Eric is an international keynote speaker, author, and serial entrepreneur, and he's also the founder of WildFit, a revolutionary nutritional program that is not a diet. It's a food philosophy that can change you down to the last pore. Eric had struggled with cystic acne, headaches, digestive issues, and bad allergies before experimenting with his diet in hopes of preventing a surgery recommended by his doctor. 30 days later, he no longer needed the operation and also cleared up his other ailments after venturing into the field of nutritional anthropology. He devoted years to studying the eating patterns of hunter-gatherer tribes, researching nutritional data and functional anthropology, and testing his theories. And the results led to the creation of WildFit, which has now changed the present and future of tens of thousands of people around the globe. I bet many of them are at their optimal advantage in this crisis, and I'm trying to join the ranks today. Thank you, Eric, for being here with us. Welcome to the show. 
You are most welcome. Thank you very much for that. One of the best introductions to a podcast I've ever heard. Oh, good. <laughs> we, try to, we try to kick off the right way here. So first off, hot topic of the moment, yeah. COVID-19, a virus that affects health in a full spectrum of ways from presenting as asymptomatic in some while requiring ventilators and, and life support in others. As an expert in nutrition, what about this pandemic have you found to confirm or contradict our assumptions on health? Well, you know, I think we're very early in the data to be able to make actual full confirmations, but you know, you do start seeing patterns and uh, here's one of the patterns that people started spotting. At first they were saying, look, you don't have to worry about this because it only goes after old people, which in itself was a very selfish standpoint because being a carrier made things dangerous for those quote old people. But what we're now really beginning to see, I believe, is that it's not that the virus is ageist, it's healthiest. It wasn't simply going after old people, it was going after old people that had serious health implications already, that had health challenges already, many of which, many of those health challenges were lifestyle oriented. So we're talking about people with type 2 diabetes and obesity, hypertension, and a variety of other like quote lifestyle diseases are looking as though they are a big, big challenge relative to this virus. and. It's now beginning to show up in the U.S. that there appear to be a much higher percentage of young people ending up hospitalized in the United States than in other countries. And I would put to you, that's because America is very often at the front of things. America is often the first of stuff. America is often the extremes of things. And so America has the most unhealthy people in the world and the healthiest people in the world. And I think we're going to see in the data that type 2 diabetes, obesity, and a variety of other food and lack of exercise related issues are a major threat threat when you're dealing with a pandemic like this. Right. And no one is immune fully to the possibility of catching the virus. Yeah, that's a very important point, Allison. It really is. Like when I first put, I put out a video a couple of, I don't know, 10 days or so ago that went medium viral. And mostly I got really good feedback from it, but I got a couple of virologists and I was just going, I don't know why you're talking about food. It's not going to stop you catching the virus. And I'm like, well, hold on a minute. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that if you suddenly eat correctly and you hydrate yourself and you get sunlight and you rest, that suddenly you're going to have the antibodies for COVID-19. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that your body's ability to deal with it and develop immunity and heal from it are obviously going to be better if you're well hydrated, well nourished, have fresh air, get sunlight and rest. And with many people already getting cabin fever and, you know, falling into habits like stress eating, what can we do to stay safe, healthy and thriving during this time stuck at home, you know, and how can we use today for a better nutritional tomorrow? Well, I think one of the things is, you know, the whole you are what you eat thing that you mentioned, you, know, you are what you eat. The reason that that doesn't really work so well is that it conjures up an image. I, I like to think of how any six-year-old would, would see an expression. So if you say you are what you eat, how does a six-year-old see that? I ate a chicken, am I going to be a chicken? So the, the expression is scientifically correct. You literally are what you eat. You take in some of what you eat and you break it into component parts. And But the expression that I'd love for us to take on right now is like, when I care for my body, my body will care for me. And I think that's what I want people to start thinking about. I want them to start thinking about, hey, you know what? I recognize, because here's another one, another one that I think is really, really important. And that is that I eat for my body, not for my emotions. That's a big problem for most people all the time. Most of us have been conditioned by, look, misguided parents and teachers and stuff. You, you fell down, you skinned your knee. Look, as a parent, I have a 22-year-old and a three-year-old, and I can tell you that their pain is my pain 
experience double. And so mm-hmm. what would I do to end their pain? I'd get, do anything. So would I give them a chocolate chip cookie to distract them from the pain? Yes. But is it entirely possible that they deduce from that, that a chocolate chip cookie equals love? And mm-hmm. so you wonder why at 40 years old, I want to walk in and grab a chocolate chip cookie <laughs> on some misguided way I'm after love. And in this time, where most of our emotions are really being tested. I mean, you only need to look at any news channel, any social media channel, anywhere. I mean, here we are now, in a sense, adding to the stress by even talking about this. And so right. now people are going to go, oh man, I really enjoyed that podcast with Allison and Eric, but now I feel like an ice cream. No, that's mm. your emotions that are feeling an ice cream. What your body is feeling like, do not slam me with refined sugar and all that other stuff that's in that. And so we really have to eat for our bodies, for our immune system, for our last line of defense, not for our emotions. Yeah, I'm speaking about taking care of your body so your body takes care of you. That really does drum up the imagery that we have a relationship to ourselves. And for many years, I would say that I was very neglectful of the cues and signals within my body. Therefore, my body couldn't trust me to respond. It's like any relationship. If you're erratic, then it's going to breed more of that. But if you can stabilize and find a way to communicate with each other where my body knows, hey, when I tell you this, you're actually going to listen to me. So I don't have to start shouting in other ways, or we don't have to face together the results from you not listening to what I've been saying for years and years and years. But there are so many voices around us that are trying to play the voice of our body. And really cultivating this awareness from within first during this time, I think is it's paramount to what our future relationship with food will be. I want to talk about your own history and how you came to develop WildFit. You transformed your own health through experimenting with the foods you ate. What guided you most during that time to make the choices you did and and what learnings did you implement into the program? Yeah, so you know, it's a funny thing about kids in pain and sickness. Um, When kids are in pain and sickness, they eventually numb it. So for example, if you have young children of three and four years old, if they have tooth pain, they don't know how to communicate, or actually even younger, two and three years old, they don't know how to communicate it. And so eventually, they just accept that that's their being. And it interrupts their sleep, and it causes them all kinds of issues, but they don't have a way of communicating it, so they numb it. And it's still there. That's how I was. I had been sick for six, seven, eight years, like consistently. I couldn't breathe through my own sinuses at all without the aid of some kind of dis- decongestion. I had horrible, painful cystic acne that left scars on my face. I had stomach pains that were so severe that I could not communicate or think, enough that I thought I had appendicitis a few times as a kid. So I was dealing with a life that many people would have defined as ill, but I defined it as me. I didn't know anything else, and so I didn't know that I was sick. I was just me. And then I just found myself in a situation where the pain got bad enough that I went to go see yet another specialist who was mm-hmm. prescribing yet another medication and yet another problem. And this time the specialist took one look down my throat and no kidding, he went pale. And he said, we have got to cut those tonsils out. I'm 21 years old at this point. That's a serious you know, look, I don't believe in tonsillectomies 99.99% of the time anyway, but when you take them out of a very small child, it's not that big a deal. When you take them out of a grown adult, particularly male, where the whole throat's been integrated through puberty and all that, that's a big surgery. But they said, you've got to take them out now. And that was, you know, a lot of times pain is the stimulant to change. I started talking to some of my friends going, I really don't want to go under surgery. I'd already done it once before for skin grafts in a real serious emergency. I didn't like it. And immediately one of my friends said, Eric, this is a hard thing to say but I think you need to think about food. And I go, what? 
I think you need to think about food. I think maybe food could be the problem here. I thought he was insane. Mm. Many introduced me to Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins was saying similar things. What's this motivational speaker telling me about food for, you know? But then I thought, you know what, at heart, I'm a scientist. And so I decided to experiment and I started experimenting and, and you know, I, I took out some stuff, obviously refined sugar and I took out garbage refined grains and all that kind of stuff. And I added in really good things. And two weeks later, I breathed through my nose for the first time in six, seven years. And my acne cleared up, the stomach pains went away. Funny thing is, when the pain goes away, you forget you had it. So I forgot about the stomach pains. They just went away until mm. about a month later when the experiment was done, I decided the experiment's over. I can go back to some of the old ways. And the stomach pains came back with such a vengeance that I was locked in. I go, this is about food and this is now my mission. Right. And at that point you're going, hmm, there must be some other emotional or psychological components at play because if I know it's leading to pain, but I'm doing it anyway, <laughs> what else is going on? And that kind of relatively leads into the field of nutritional anthropology. It's focused on understanding how diet and nutrition interact with evolutionary, um, behavioral, social and cultural factors. And you've studied this field quite extensively at this point. How is our current U.S. lifestyle and diet hurting our health? There's a book that I'm currently working on called The Evolution Gap. And the concept of The Evolution Gap is that all living things evolve in response to their environment pretty much in lockstep over the space of hundreds of thousands or millions of years, depending on their evolutionary velocity. Of course, fruit flies, because they live such short lives, evolve more quickly. But at the end of the day, we evolve in response to the uh, selective pressures that are on us in our natural environment. And about maybe 30,000 years ago, humans made an observation. And the observation was, look, when we return to this camp, there are plants growing here where we dropped the seeds last time. And at the point in time that they recognized they could grow food, they started making a number of decisions. The first thing is that by recognizing they could grow food, they created more consistent food supply, but they also probably started choosing foods based on flavor. If you and I have a choice between growing kale or watermelon, I'm growing watermelon. So what I'm getting at is that at that point, this thing that we call the evolution gap opened, and that is the gap between our evolved physiology, our evolved psychology, and our current way of life. And so where we are in that curve now is that curve has exploded, particularly in the last 100 years. So we are so far separate from our design that our food production system is killing us. Look, 100 years ago, cancer was not in the top 10 killers in America. It wasn't even in the top 10. In the last 100 years, it shot up so that now one third of people, one third of people will lose their lives to cancer. And by the way, there's a lot of ways to measure the pain of that. Look, everybody's going to die. So, hey, what does it matter? Okay, but here's what's really important. What about the social cost? And then what about the financial cost? Because most of those people end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars in treatment in the last 10 or 20 years of their life because the food supply has changed. So where we are, to your question directly, where America is, where the West is going right now, is in an incredibly dangerous direction. And here's the good news about what's going on right now. The problem for most people is that the pain is too distant for them to recognize that it's pain. When they eat badly on Monday, they don't experience pain on Tuesday. They experience pain in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s. And so it's far off in the future. Listen, you and I are, I'm, I'm probably about twice your age. Well, I can tell you something. Time starts to speed up as you get older. The best way I can describe it is that it's like when we were in school and school break happens and at first the days are long and then all of a sudden July comes along and all of a sudden it's like summer's half over and then the days start speeding up dramatically. And the years are like that for us. 
But in the meantime, we are so focused on the present that we make food decisions not recognizing the long-term pain. Today, we're going to see in the data, eating that way, drinking those fizzy sugar soft drinks, eating all those ridiculous refined grains, the preservatives, the junk that we put into our body today is directly related to your immune response. And people are going to begin to realize that they need to eat this way as their defense today. Right. And I've even heard you go on to explain in detail the particular systems in our bodies and how they're affected. You've spoken multiple times on the importance of working our lymphatic systems by encouraging more movement for our evolutionary design. And unlike, you know, the cardiovascular system, which uses the heart to pump, the lymphatic system has no central pump and relies on our activity and movement to push lymphatic and waste fluids through the body to support our immune system. So without enough movement, you know, our, our bodies can experience pooling of fluids yep. resulting in blockages. And speaking of evolutionary design, you've spent a great amount of time with the Hadza tribe in Tanzania observing how their hunter-gatherer lifestyles interact with their diet. And I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, that they are far more in alignment with our natural design than we are with our hyper-industrialized, commercialized lifestyle. What are the most dramatic ways our Western lifestyle diverges from theirs. And you know, how does the microevolution of civilizations and colonization play into these factors? I think the first thing is we shouldn't romanticize the idea that they're getting it right. We, we, we can't romanticize the idea that we should just all live the way they're living because you know, frankly, their life is very hard too in a lot of ways. Like for example, in their top 10 killers is falling out of trees they're climbing for food and stuff like that. So, you know, their life has its own perils in its own ways. But I've been visiting them now for about 10 years. And here's a couple of the things that I've noticed. To your point on the lymphatic system, we don't have a pump for that because A, lymphatic flow is not urgent, it's important. You know, blood flow is urgent and important, so we have to have a pump. Lymphatic flow is important but not urgent. And so because our natural environment forced us into movement, lymphatic flow happened. And so here's what's fascinating. When you're out with those guys, let me tell you, they very rarely aren't moving. They move every single day. I, I woke up one day to have the chief, and he and I are quite good friends. We've gotten to know each other over the years, and we have a little bit of a banter, a little man banter going on because I came there, and I know a lot. I, I, I was born in Africa. I've spent a lot of time in the bush, and one day we saw these birds off in the distance, and I did one of these. I don't know if it'll come across on the sound, but... And that's like so accurate that when I did that, they all picked up their bows and arrows because they thought there was a bird nearby. <laughs> and so when I started, and I can do a number of those African birds and he mm. was blown away that I could do that. So now we have a little competitive thing. So he mm. comes to me one day and he goes, do you want to go hunting? And I was doing a week long stay with them. And I'm like, yeah, let's go hunting. And I observed that they're not taking water. So I don't take water because clearly they have a plan. And I do take my phone, not that there's any signal, but I want to track our distance. Mm. Allison, we did 27 miles that day. Oh my word. Now let's not imagine, I remember running the London Marathon back in the year 2000 and I ran that marathon and everybody warned me, oh Eric, when you get to those cobblestone streets, it's going to be really tough. I'll tell you something, those cobblestone streets are a playground compared to 27 miles in the African bush with climbing and thorns ripping you apart. It's the toughest 27 miles I've ever done. And they didn't stop for water. 
But we get through this um, hunting at about 26 miles. I don't know how I'm going to make it. And they stop at this um, little like Maasai. It's not the Maasai. They're called the Datoga people. And they're like the Maasai. They have cattle. And there's a trough with water in it. And the Bushmen all lean in and move the pig and the cow slime out of the way and drink the water. And I'm like, nope, I will wait till we get to camp. And I did get that back to camp and drank two liters of water in a heartbeat, like just straight down. The next morning, the chief comes up to me and he goes, are you ready to go hunting again? Because this is what it's like every day. I did go again and we did 17 more miles before we killed a big bush pig and had to carry it back to camp, which is incredibly heavy. And I'm saying that we now are not moving enough. Now, I'm not saying we have to go out there and do 27 miles, but in the normal day, just to get your normal food and water requirements met, if you're not doing seven to 15,000 steps a day, you're not using your body at its most basic need. Oh, what a story. I and mean, you actually have a lot of cool stories that as we were doing research, we discovered your grandfather was professor, right? Professor Thomas F. Dreyer? Dreyer, yeah. And Dreyer, and he discovered the Lorisbad skull, a, a 250,000-year-old human skull in Africa, which is one of, if not the oldest skulls on record. And it kind of started your interest in human design at an early age when you got to hold the skull and contemplate what life was like for our ancestors and then cut to these incredible stories in the present in the last several years. It's really awesome to witness and to be able to speak with you. Um, so let's let's switch over to our medical care and healthcare systems and, and our doctors and the training they receive. During your research, you discovered many medical professionals and doctors often lack substantial diet and nutrition education. I hate to say it, but it's not many. It's like almost none of them. And it's not their fault. I don't mean that, but like you ask any doctor, you know, how much time you spent in medical school, six, eight, 10 years, how much time do you spend study food and not? And instead then they're prescribing medications and surgeries and healthcare plans without considering the role food plays to illness, in whom or what industries are we blindly entrusting our health then? We are blindly trusting the government. We're blindly trusting the food manufacturing industry. We're blindly trusting the medical industry. We're blindly trusting the pharmaceutical industry. And I want to be really clear. I'm not here to vilify any one individual person. I don't think there's some evil dude in a suit standing up there going, oh, I wish we could give people diabetes. But I do think there's a guy in an office in Atlanta who's saying, I choose profit over health. And I think we need to pay attention to that. And on the point on doctors, I want to be clear. I mean, some of my very good friends are doctors. We have many wild fit coaches that have been medical doctors that have come to us to learn what we do around food relationship because they don't get to study that medical school. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for them. In fact, just about a month ago, I was actually in the bush with the Hudza Bushman one more time, and I had to come out of the bush for one day just to come and pick up some of my buddies that were coming to do this documentary with me. And I started developing stomach cramps. And they were so severe that I couldn't sleep. And then one of the doctors that was with me, two doctors were with me. There was a, a Dr. Vincent and Dr. Ara were with me. And they both gave me abdominal exams and said, you know what? You, we think you have an appendix problem. And immediately I'm at the hospital. Immediately I'm having a CAT scan. And it turns out my appendix had already ruptured. If I had not gone in that day, I'd be possibly dead right now. I am absolutely grateful that there was a man there who was a surgeon. He was actually an American doctor. I am grateful for doctors. I don't ever want to come across that I'm not. And let's be clear what they're there for. They're there to help us once there's a problem. Right. The way our medical industry works, it's they're there once there's a problem. They're not there to prevent the problem. 
Very often it's like the doctor's the guy pulling the people out of the river that are drowning. Oh my God, there's another person drowning. Oh my God, there's another person drowning. What I want to be is the guy up the river that's stopping people from being thrown in. Right, exactly. There's been growing interest in understanding and implementing these behavioral strategies to modify our lifestyle and dietary choices. How could behavioral science impact our consumption of food? So behavioral science is one of these things that if the food manufacturers know hypnotic language patterns, uh, psychological anchoring techniques, if they understand a behavioral change and you don't, then it's basically like you getting into the boxing ring with Muhammad Ali. You know, mm -hmm. you, you don't stand a chance. There's a soft drink company. I can't remember the name of it right now because we wouldn't want to say anything, but the color red comes to mind. But in any event, there's this campaign that they did, a big social media campaign where they bought CCTV footage of random acts of kindness just randomly happening on the street. And they managed to track down all the CCTV footage and then they created a string of them. And it's one of the most gorgeous social media pieces you ever see. You see this person trying to cross the street and you see people randomly kissing in the park and people dancing. And it's just like, just makes you feel good about being a human being. And at the peak of your emotional experience, boom, the big red logo. The idea there is to make you feel good, see the logo. Feel good, see the logo. And you wonder why it is that years later in life, you can be driving along and go, I don't feel good, where's the logo? And they know this stuff, they, they do it on purpose. And so if we don't learn and get our own black belt in our own behavioral psychology, then we're fighting with Mike Tyson. And it's bigger than that because they have billions and billions of dollars to manipulate our psychology. So we now have to arm ourselves, understand what they're doing, and create what we call super consciousness around food so that you're not simply giving into them. One great example. I went to an Anglican school, and, and so you know we, we read the Bible quite a lot. And, and I remember mm -hmm. the nativity story. There was the pregnancy, the the magical pregnancy and there was the birth and then there was the three wise men and the star in the sky and the manger the three wise men brought frankincense myrrh and gold not one of them brought candy canes <laughs> you understand not one of them brought pumpkin pie or any of that stuff that's now christmas right and then in the sequel you, you might remember mel gibson i think made the sequel but in the sequel to that story <laughs> we find jesus you know uh, sacrificing his life for the sins of everyone and blah 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 and they stuck him with you know and he, he he broke bread but you know what i don't remember i don't remember him eating chocolate i don't remember chocolate being part of the story at all and yet now we have people all over the western world cannot get through Easter without eating chocolate. Mm -hmm. They know how to manipulate us, and now we need to get a black belt in self-defense so that they can't. Right, and let's design some new traditions or return to the originals or do a fresh take on the old, whatever it needs to be. So yeah, I do, I do want to get into the nitty-gritty of all things diet and get your take on you know, dieting programs like paleo and keto as well as find out what the word diet means. But first... We're going to take a quick commercial break. Welcome back. We're here with Eric Edmeads, creator of Wild Fit. Eric, when people think of diets, words like paleo, weight watchers, the whole 30 might come to mind. What exactly is the meaning of diet? And how do these mainstream diets stack up to their intended purpose? Language is a very interesting thing and language morphs over time. When Richard Dawkins created the term meme, he meant it as a metaphor of an idea being expressed as a gene. Now, the teenagers of the world have co-opted the term and now they call a meme any little postcard with a saying on it. And I would say that that is a form of meme. And where we're at now is the word diet has kind of been co-opted in that same fashion. So what diet actually means, the traditional meaning of the word diet, and it's still used this way in every environment except for humans and pets, means lifestyle. 
So if I were to say to you, you know, what is the elephant's diet? Then the elephant's diet would be to eat 200 kilograms of bark and fresh fruit and grass every day and drink 70 liters of water and to walk 20 miles a day. That's their diet. If I was to tell you, you know, if I was to ask you, what's the leaf cutter ant's diet? You might be tempted to say, well, they eat leaves. But in fact, no, they don't. They, they carve up leaves and take them back to their home and compost them and farm aphids. They're agriculturalists. So diet means lifestyle. And the traditional Greek and Latin roots of diet means way of life. The world has begun to morph the term when it's used with humans and pets. And so now diet basically means a temporary alteration to the way I normally live in order to achieve a short-term goal like fitting into this outfit for the summer. Mm. You know, that's, that's what we think diet means. And, and what we also think diet means is diet means a bunch of awkward rules and restrictions that I don't really want to have to pay attention to. Diet means something that I try very often and fail at every time. Diet means die with a T on the end, as far as Garfield mm. is concerned. And so almost all mainstream diets fail people. Nobody fails diets. Diets fail people. And the reason being is that diets address only half of the really important conversation that needs to take place around food, and that is the nutritional side of it. Now, many diets even get that wrong. I don't want to go name brand here, but there are definitely diets that get that wrong, where the nutritional advice they're giving is absolutely incorrect. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Any diet that's telling you that, that you should be counting your calories, they're off base. They don't know what they're talking about. It's wrong. In any diet that's telling you that you can exercise your way to weight loss, they're wrong. That's a myth, a meme that was created by the soft drink industry to place the responsibility upon the consumer for obesity and diabetes rather than on their products. So mm. any diet that's asking you to do those typical things, they're, they're wrong. Any diet that doesn't deal with your psychology, that doesn't deal with the childhood linkages that you made to food, that doesn't deal with the emotional reasons you're eating is wrong. So that said, there are some diets that are on the right track. There are some diets that are on the right track. I would say that the most on-track diet in the world, really, truly, you know, in terms of branded diets, is the paleo diet. Dr. Lauren Cordain did a great job observing the idea of closing the nutritional part of the evolution gap. Now, I believe there are some components that are missing, and because he didn't lock it down, there's now a wide open idea of what paleo is. I mean, you can go into a shop and find paleo bread. That's oxymoronic. There, there was no bread in the Paleolithic. So what we really need to do is we need to work on finding some fundamental nutritional truths, which, by the way, are super easy to find because all animals on Earth evolved a, a requirement for certain nutritional constituents, and B, the ability to process certain foods to get those nutrition, those, mm. those constituents. That's it. Every organism on earth has done that. And so if we want to keep our elephants in the zoo healthy, then what we do is go look at the way elephants in the wild behave and eat. And if we duplicate that, the elephants in the zoo will be healthy. In fact, that's actually what stimulated wild fit in the first place, really. I was reading an article about captive elephants, and they were only living in the 1880s, 1890s. They were only living six or seven, 10 years max. When they captured them and put them in a zoo, 10 years. That was enough for them to get the return on investment they were looking for. But, but nobody knew that elephants were supposed to live longer. When they found out that elephants were supposed to live 70 or 80 years, they started studying elephants in the wild. And I read this article on a plane, on a Virgin Atlantic airplane, on my way to do a photo assignment in Africa. And I'm reading this article. And it says in the article, when they observe the elephant's wild diet. And I was like, no, no, no. They observe the elephant's diet, not the elephant's wild diet. There's no, there's your naturally evolved diet. And that just infuriated me. And that's what gave birth to the thought, oh my God, every living thing on earth has a diet. Well, they observed the elephants in the wild. They duplicated that lifestyle in the zoo. And all of a sudden the zoo 
elephants not only lived as long as the elephants in the wild, but often longer because in the zoo, they weren't facing the same threats. We have that opportunity. If we combine what we can learn from our human history, our evolution, from the way the Hudson people live today, if we can combine the best parts of that with the safe parts of our life today, we can be like those zoo elephants that live a lot longer than we would in nature because we're taking Mm. the best of both worlds. That's exciting. That's actually, it's riveting to to think about and very inspirational and and motivating. And you touched on a few of the myths uh, already. There are myths fueled by food, medical, diet, commercial industries, and they've run rampant for decades. Even our original USDA food pyramid created in uh, 1992 was heavily influenced by meat and dairy lobbyists in effort to boost sales, resulting in questionable recommendations for daily intake. And, you know, I'm just thinking of all the kids who I was one of them grew up thinking milk builds strong bones. Are there any other common myths that you see spreading today? There's this little expression, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not plotting against you. So sometimes these days when we start talking about the food industry, people brand me as like a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I think they're all nasty and they're out to get us. But, you know, here's one of the myths. Fat is bad. There's a myth for you. Fat is bad. Again, English is such a fascinating language. We're lazy sometimes. Instead of making new words for new things, we just use one word for a branch of things. So, you know, the question is, is meat good or bad? Well, the answer to that is yes. Meat is good or bad. You know, it's just, that's how it is. But But we use one word to describe all different types of meat, all different species, whether it was GMO or hormone filled or grass fed, it's all meat. And so, we're at a place where it's kind of like, we need to pay attention properly to the way we think through those definitions. Mm-hmm. As I said, we, we use words to describe an entire category of things, one word to describe the category. So we have this, this, this idea that fat is bad. Well, there are definitely bad fats, trans fats. Don't even think about them. Don't have them in your house. Why would you do that? But we need fat. I mean, your brain is largely made of fat. Fat is your single best energy source. You need to have fat. Why do we think fat is bad? We think fat's bad because in the 1960s, the scientific community had determined that there was a very likely correlation and potentially causation between sugar and heart disease. It looked like sugar was impacting heart disease and and causing heart disease. The sugar industry very quickly understood that that was going to be a problem for them in terms of profitability. And so they hired two Harvard researchers and paid them in today's money, I gather, about $50,000 to commission a study that would frame fat for heart disease. And so their study was published in one of the medical journals. And back then, you didn't have to disclose your funding. So nobody knew who made this study. And the study got published in the medical journal, and it became gospel. And so the low-fat boom was caused. And I think in time, we're going to see that the combination of reducing people's healthy fat intake and increasing people's sugar intake has been the most devastating hit to human health in history, maybe the Black Plague might be worse, but I'm talking about self-caused ones. And, mm. and it's also been one of the most expensive, most economically damaging thing that's ever been done to America. Because just think about this. I was reading a little while ago that a governmental body suggested that Obamacare was going to save the American government about $10 billion a year. Big number. Most of us can't relate to a billion, let alone 10 of them. Mm. But diabetes is currently costing America $260 billion a year. So saving $10 billion a year is like, it doesn't, it's irrelevant when you realize that we are causing that cost by allowing the sugar industry to manipulate us. Yeah, that's like a single bite at a whole buffet. 
(laughs) proportionately. And speaking of bites and buffets, one of the basic things in terms of nutrition and fueling ourselves is understanding hunger. And you've actually identified and outlined six different kinds of human hunger. What are they and how can we be more mindful of them? The, uh, the six hungers came out as a result of working with thousands of people all over the world and identifying their psychological weaknesses, like what was driving them to eat. So we, we really wanted to ask the question, why do we eat? And of course, here's the trouble the vast majority of what we eat isn't actually for nutritional reasons. In polling clients, we initially identified four, and then in time it expanded out, and we recognize now six core hungers. None of them, only one of them is a legitimate hunger. The other five are kind of ghost hungers, if you will. The legitimate hunger is nutritional hunger. Unfortunately, it's not very loud. The reason being is that we can actually live quite a long time without food. We buffer nutrients. In fact, there's great science on this because people have undertaken hunger strikes in prisons where they've been under medical supervision, so we know what happens to the body when people don't eat. And you're really talking about weeks or even even into low months before there's serious damage being done to the body. And, And in fact, in the early stages of not eating, there's many benefits in that. So nutritional hunger isn't urgent, it's important. So what that means is that if somebody begins running really low on certain things, they might get a non-specific signal to eat. And remember, we didn't have you know food delivery in grocery stores. So your body doesn't come along and go, oh, you're low on vitamin C, you should go find oranges. Because of course, vitamin C rich foods were seasonal and come from a different set of sources. For example, you could get them from citrus fruits or berries, or you can get vitamin C from organ meats. But rather than the body going, oh, go get me some organ meats or go get me some food, your body just says, go get food. So when you're nutritionally hungry, you just get this generally blanket, go get food, maybe leaning a little toward fat or salt or sugar, depending on what's going on, but generally just go get food. So that's nutritional hunger. It's not very sharp. It's not very strong, but it's there. It's the only one that's real. Another hunger is Mm -hmm. called thirst. Now people are confused often when we bring that up because they're like, well, that's not a hunger. No, no, it really is. Our ancestors did not have pottery and fancy water bottles. They, they, just, they just didn't have them. That meant that they drank water when they were at water sources, but they got a lot of their water from the food they ate. So they would go eat food and it would have water in it. And so when they started to feel a little dehydrated, the body would generate a very generic go eat message. Go eat, you're thirsty. Go eat, you're dehydrated. Now, when we fast forward today, evolution gap being as wide as it is, a huge amount of the food that we eat today has no water in it at all. It just doesn't have any water in it. And so we get this signal, go eat. And the next thing you know, we pick up a bag of potato chips. And then the potato chips not only don't have water in them, but the potato chips require water to process them. And so now we're even more dehydrated. And that's why you can't just eat one chip, right? It's a cycle. It goes on like this. We also have varieties of hunger, which is designed to make sure that we don't eat only one food all the time. That's actually normally a very healthy thing. Of course, now it's there's too much variety available to us, right, but basically right. it makes sure that you know, you've been eating this food because it's in season for a long time, but you need a variety of nutrients. So it's kind of like, I'm bored at that. I'm going to go get myself a gazelle. And there's, there's low blood sugar hunger. And that's an artificial hunger. That's usually a function of somebody having a high carb diet and relying on their diet to supplement their blood sugar rather than ketones to help them process fat to energy. So when somebody is on the carb roller coaster, they have these big ups and downs. If you know, do you have any friends that get hangry? Do you know anybody oh, who gets yes. hangry? That they are on that roller coaster. People who burn fat as a predominant fuel source don't get hangry. They just, they just don't get that because they have 200,000 calories of energy all the time. People who are burning blood sugar have about 2,000 calories. And when it gets low, they get hangry and they get moody and that sort of thing. 
-hmm. When people understand these hungers, they gain a level of consciousness about why they're eating and it allows them to make better food decisions because the most dangerous of the hungers, of course, is emotional hunger. Mm -hmm. And that's where you eat simply to change the way you feel. And it's a lie. There's a thing that we talk about in the, in, in the WildFit program called the food timeline. And you're really going to get this. And, and I'm telling you, everybody who's been passively listening, if they've been passively listening, actively listen just for this section. Here's what happens. Somebody's feeling low. They've been conditioned that there are certain foods that can help them not feel low. They can feel better. When do they feel better? Do they feel better after eating the food or once they make the decision to eat the food? They decide they're going to go get an ice cream or a Cinnabon or a chocolate bar or a whatever. And in the decision to get it, they start producing dopamine just from the decision, especially if the company making the food they're going for has been effective in their marketing, like I mentioned before with the soft drink company. So they're feeling low. They make the decision to eat the food. They produce dopamine. They immediately start feeling good. Then they eat the food in a Pavlovian dog response method, link the food to the good feeling they got from the permission, and they feel good, and they amplify the feel good. Then they load themselves generally with bad quality fats and cheap sugar, which spikes their blood sugar which make, and caffeine, which makes them feel even better. Mm. But how do they feel half an hour later? Horrible. Crash. Terrible but people's perspective is on the wrong part of the timeline. And mm -hmm. so when people understand the food timeline, when they feel go low, and, and I want you to try this, like what's your go-to? You're feeling low, you're feeling a little alone. What's mm -hmm. a good go-to to feel more connected, to just feel nicer? Cereal. Cereal, because I was the same way. Cereal was mm -hmm. milk, cereal. By the way, do you know what the number two ingredient on uh, Rice Krispies is? Corn syrup, probably. <laughs> number two ingredient on corn flakes? Sugar. Corn syrup, yeah. Num Do you know what the number two ingredient on Frosted Flakes is? Corn, because the number one ingredient is sugar. Oh my word. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. So no wonder you have the exact experience. You're like, and by the way, what was nicer than breakfast time as a child with your mummy there to take care and all that stuff. So you're feeling low and you go, mm -hmm. I'm gonna go have some cereal. And doesn't it work like this? I'm gonna go have some cereal. That you're feeling good. You haven't even had the cereal yet. So then you right. go eat the cereal, spike your sugar. You're feeling great, 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 great. Then. Half an hour later, it's like, I think I need another bowl of cereal because mm -hmm. you crash, right? And my productivity is just out the window. Out the window. <laughs> so here's what you do now. You make a list of other ways to feel better. It's just developing maturity and coping, right? But nobody's teaching us this stuff. So you're mm -hmm. feeling a little low. Tell me three other ways you could change your feeling for the better. Just three. Somebody you could call, you know, yeah, do you journaling. have a pet stroke? You know, I, there's any number of things, right? So here's the real question. Let's say you're feeling low and you call somebody and that helps you to feel better. How long is that likely to last? Well, it actually probably lasts longer. At least it doesn't have a hangover. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to last longer and it's not going to drop you off the sugar cliff on the other side. And this is actually, it kind of relates to the concept you developed called the hindsight window. And that describes the time between experiencing a negative event and when you eventually perceive that same event as a blessing in the future. How can we shorten the time in this window to be happier, especially when relating to our health and food? Does that mean choosing this apple right now may not produce the same dopamine spike, but later I will feel better? Or are there specific ways and situations in this pandemic to apply the hindsight window? In fact, as I'm saying out loud, it now actually is sort of a kissing cousin to the food timeline. They're not yeah. the same. They're a little different. 
Yeah, they're, they're the same and they're a little bit different. So the hindsight window is a, a name for something we all understand. And that is that sometimes bad things happen that are bad in the moment. And then later we look back on them and we realize they're good. And I just named the period of time between those moments as the hindsight window on the basis mm. that hindsight is 2020. So, you know, you get fired from a job, it's bad in the moment, but a year later, like, thank God I got fired from that job. And the mm. day you're willing to say, thank God is the day you close the window. The theory is the shorter the windows in your life, the happier you will be because you're living with less regret and angst. One way to think of it is the more regret and anger and resentment you have about your past, the more anxiety you will have about your future because you're assuming that if the road was bumpy before, it'll be bumpy again. Whereas mm. the more appreciation and gratitude somebody has about their past, the greater sense of faith they have that life is happening for them even when it feels like it's not. When we're in the present dealing with the hindsight window, one of the really key strategies to look at is to ask yourself, is it possible that we will laugh about this one day? You know, what might be good about this one day? So let's use this example right now. Here we are on lockdown. I just found out today that my local government here has extended the lockdown until May 31st. And I'm alone in my house. My family's trapped in the United States. So I am now going to be alone at minimally now for two some plus months, right? Like it's a long time. So is that bad or good? Well, what I would suggest to you is that it's not inherently either. It's not inherently there. It's now up to me to make it one way or the other. The meanings that we assess in life are our own as long as we're conscious of them. And Mm -hmm. so I took a look and go, well, what could be good about this? And I thought, you know, one thing that could be good about this is my followers and my clients and my team has been pushing me forever to do more interviews like this because I'm always on the road. I'm always on stage. I'm on planes. I don't have time for this. And now I'm up. I'm doing it. When I get through this, I'm looking at what might be good about this. Wouldn't it be cool if by the end of this, I knew how to play the guitar a little bit. So I ordered myself a guitar and I'm playing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to say what might be good about this. Yeah, I did. (laughs) But in any event, that's kind of the process, right? right? The process is something, quote, bad happens. The first thing to really understand is that nothing has any inherent meaning. That's a tough principle at times because some terrible stuff does happen and it might have inherent consequence, but it doesn't have inherent meaning. You mentioned the term superconscious that I'd said earlier. I want to define superconsciousness as far as I define it. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've identified in the way WildFit works. Consciousness is when you're in that moment, when you're in your mind and you are the captain of the ship and you are making the decisions. Done. You're being conscious. You're having a conscious conversation. You're having a conscious intervention. But we only spend maybe five or eight percent of our day conscious, right? The rest of what we do is like automatic pilot. Superconscious is when your body and your mind are aligned in behavior. So mm-hmm. if somebody consciously eats well but unconsciously doesn't, that means they're going to eat badly the vast majority of the time because we are on automatic pilot most of the time. When we get to a place where we're superconscious, what that means is the body is doing what the captain wants it to. So in the old days, I was powerless over things like cookies, donuts, pizza, that kind of stuff. Today, there's no part of me. If there's an angel and a devil on my shoulder, they got their arms around each other. We walk past a pizza and the angel goes, no way we're doing that. And the devil goes, damn right, we're not doing that. That's super consciousness. And when Mm. we can apply that to events happening in the moment, we say, you know what? I'm going to be just super conscious for a moment. I know this feels bad right now, but I just got to stop for a minute. Before I start producing all the feel bad chemicals, which I could get addicted to, I need to ask important questions. What might be good about this one day? What might I look back and laugh about among this one day? How do I want to remember myself later? How do I want to think of myself? Like, here's my favorite advice for everybody right now. You're a bit young for the Rocky movies. Did you see any of them? I don't watch movies anyway, but yes. There you familiar. go. I don't blame you. But, but in a movie like Rocky, where he's got to go fight Drago, we don't have six weeks to watch him train. So what do we do? 
we create a montage. He's out there training in the snow and he can only do so many pull-ups, but now he can do more and he's getting, he, he, the montage shows all the hard work and the working out. Here's what I challenge everybody to do. Create your COVID-19 montage. What do you want to really be doing? How do you want to remember this time? Live a present that the future you will look back upon your past and go, you rocked it. Ooh, the COVID-19 montage. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna design that one today. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to put it into practice. Um, so I don't <laughs> want to leave here without breaking down the, the specialness behind the methodology of WildFit and just hearing why it's not like every other diet program and how weight loss isn't the goal and yet it ends up often being quite a side effect and then even like success stories and how you measure that success. Tell me about WildFit and, and how it works. You know, one of the best ways to measure this kind of stuff is with metrics. What happens with a lot of like sort of fad diet things is that it got kind of like what happened with Subway. They got one guy who ate only Subway and he lost a lot of weight. And then they just put pictures of him everywhere and sold millions of sandwiches because of one success story. And that's the way a lot of sort of fad diets work. They have one or two really good successes with people who had really exceptional willpower and got short-term results often ended up boomeranging back the way things were. But in the meantime, they've got the pictures. There's different metrics to look at. In the digital training world, for example, the completion rates on most digital programs are somewhere between 3 and 10%. So see, people buy a digital program and the actual full-on completion rate is really, really low. WildFit, when we first launched it, we were really amazed because we were having like an 85% completion rate and it's a 90-day program. Wow. And by the way, we've polled people to find this out. At the point in time when our clients have been two weeks on the program, for 80% of them, that is the longest they've ever stuck on a diet before. So people are falling off diets within days generally. And that's why I say that people don't actually fail at diets, diets fail people. There are some things that we do in WildFit that are very engaging and they cause completion. That's the first step. I mean, yeah, we have to have the nutrition right, we have to have the psychology right, but if we can't get them to watch the videos, it doesn't help. We got picked up by Mindvalley and we've now two years in a row been the highest rated program on the platform. Our program is three times longer than any other, which usually is bad for ratings. Like The longer the program, the harder to maintain the high ratings. And it's food usually terrible. You never see diet programs with a money back guarantee. Well, you do now, but, but wow. no, no diets do that because everybody be getting their money back. The principles inside, first, the first aspect is, as I've said, you got to make it engaging so people want to finish. The reason that Vision, the founder of Mindvalley, picked up WildFit as a program, the way he tells the story is he was driving along in his car listening and I came on the radio and it's like, hi, this is Eric Edmonds with day 66 of the WildFit challenge. And he's like, I've never done anything for 66 days in a row. <laughs> so that engagement piece is one of the reasons it works. The other reason it works is that the nutrition is solid. Like it's solid nutritional anthropology. We are guiding people on a very incremental basis to radically improve their nutritional and hydrational load so that they're healthier. And then the third piece is we've layered in that some really important psychological principles, some of which we share today, where we guide them through exercises and the best way I can finally wrap it up for you is I was sitting down having a meeting with the president of our company, Andrea, and Jeffrey Perlman, one of the founders of Zumba. And the reason he was at the meeting with us is that he contacted me having done WildFit. And he said, oh my God, you are about to do to the diet industry what we did to the fitness industry. How can I help? And he's been advising us since. So now we're sitting around the table. He said, Eric, everybody out there is looking for a diet that can, they can stick to. And you've created a program that sticks to them. That's what we've got to work on. Then he said, but I need to know something. What's your brand word? What's your frequency? What are you really all about? 
And we're sat there going, geez, I don't know. What, what do you mean? He goes, well, Coca-Cola is all about happiness. I might argue that point. Uh, mm -hmm. Harley Davidson is all about rebellion and whatever. And he said, so what are you about? And I just said, I'm about freedom. Freedom to do what you want to do and freedom to not do what you don't want to do. And I'm not kidding you. We had that conversation the next morning, in fact. We're sitting having breakfast in a resort in Jamaica. And a guy walks out of the buffet, recognizes me, walks right up to the table and goes, oh my God, you're Eric Edmeets. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I go, for what? And he goes, I'm not kidding you. He goes, for my freedom. And the three of us were like the genie and Aladdin. Kazunk! Like, it was like, and I suddenly thought, no, 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 no. Jeffrey or Andrea put him up to this. It's too good. It's too good. And they're all looking at me thinking I put them up. And then Jeffrey, so sharp. He's so good at brand and marketing. He turns to the guy and he goes, wait, wait, wait. What do you mean by freedom? What does it really mean to you? And the guy goes, I can tell you, it's really simple. I just walked through the whole buffet. I got to the other end and I thought, wow, so strange to have a buffet that doesn't have co cookies and croissants and muffins. And then I turned around and they were there the whole time. I just don't see them anymore. I think that's why you and I in our conversations on and off camera have experienced so much alignment because that gateway to holistic liberation really is what drives me as well. As someone who maybe from the outside in a lot of the different ways that I've experienced privilege and maybe some notoriety and entertainment, people can assume that that gives me all the more freedom automatically to live my life the way I want. And there is a lot of truth in, yes, having access to resources, to networks, to be able to pursue my dreams, sure. But the lesson of liberation is not automatic. It is individual and you can be materially successful, but completely in bondage, or you can, you know, vice versa. You can can find psychological freedom amidst any circumstance. And so the idea that I could finally empower myself and then through that empowerment, help guide others to being their own leaders um, is just so tantalizing for me because I am excited about the idea that your program actually wants to get itself out of the job. After you do the job, you don't want to be employed again because people are free. And that's the same with me. I want people to start their own podcast because now they know. Now they know what to do and they know how to learn how to learn. And that kind of key to freedom is just is such a precious gift in this time when a lot of us are feeling actually quite the opposite, um, boxed in and maybe sitting alone with ourselves for the first time in a long time. So last question, how can people sign up? Where can they find you? And how can they get access to this program while we are uh, doing our COVID-19 montages? Um, they can definitely go to getwildfit.com and there's a couple of great starting points. I believe there's a download on there that teaches them about the six hungers. There's a snack pack that I think they can download from that site. But the best thing really to do right now is to do our 14-day challenge. For years and years, people had to go straight in and do the 90-day program. And we stripped out the psychological principles and created a food freedom challenge. It's a 14-day reset. And over the space of two weeks, people will absolutely have an impact on their food psychology immediately. A little bit of advice about that. Don't change anything until it starts. Just, just go sign up. Don't. A lot of people like, I'm going to be good because I'm signing up for something. That defeats the purpose. If you want to get different results, you have to take different actions. So we want them to take different actions. Equally, we don't want them going binging out and freaking out because they're about to give everything up. Behave mm -hmm. normally, 
sign up and I'll see people in the 14 day challenge and we'll make a big impact. That's huge. I, I can't wait. I, I hope everyone listening gives it a try. I myself have been sending the link and information to a variety of people who all come at it from a different standpoint. You know, food can be so individualized. I myself was in rehab for an eating disorder or several eating disorders growing up. And so hearing about the different kinds of hunger, well, that can be triggering for some and they may try to manipulate what you're saying. And I know I would have years ago to value validate why I do not need to put fuel in my body. And now, of course, in recovery with a much different relationship to food, I can recognize food is neither friend nor foe, it's fuel. And really how to differentiate these different hungers. And let me tell you, the freedom really, it's not just with food, it changes everything. So here's to wishing everyone the best experience and just an enlightening experience and transformation with Wild Fit. Eric, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate all of the knowledge you just dropped. <laughs> you are most, most welcome. It's always a delight when I get to spend time with you. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, thanks. We will see you soon on some kind of viral video chat, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And then one of these days, one of these days in person again. Yeah, right. TBD. Okay, now it's time for this week's mantras. For this, I'll read each mantra twice, leaving the third silent for you to repeat the mantra back. Write them down on your phone, on a notepad, share them on your story, and that way you can revisit them and begin to make mindful changes in your mind, health, and your body. First, when I take care of my body, my body takes care of me. When I take care of my body, my body takes care of me. I eat for my body, not my emotions. I eat for my body, not my emotions. And lastly, food is neither friend nor foe. Food is just fuel. Food is neither friend nor foe. Food is fuel. Great. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you think this would be impactful for someone in your life, please do share it and take a moment to rate and review this podcast with your favorite takeaways. I'll see you next time for more simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.